0: Okay, thank you for attending uh, our Zoom presentation, which occurs every Wednesday evening at 7.30 p.m. And once again, we're very fortunate to have uh, two guests on our parish update and meditation evening. Uh, John Salsi, who I mentioned last week and interviewed last week, a very beneficial interview for those who want to know about ecclesiology, study the church. Um, and of course, for today, we also have Robert Sisko with us, uh, although we can't see him. So, but we'll hear his voice uh, and uh, he'll have much to offer, no doubt. Uh, so let's begin dig with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for, us, pray for us now, be our amen. amen. Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. Pray. Good Saint Joseph, pray for, pray us. for us. And Saint Martha, pray for, us. pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Been. So let's begin with a short introduction um, to begin this topic, uh, or to further this topic of Sedevacantism, of There have been many various revolutionary movements within the world and within the membership of Holy Mother Church, and nearly all of these revolutions have ended in tragedy. Such revolutionary heretics and schismatics in Holy Church include the Montanists, who claim that they alone truly were specially gifted by the Holy Ghost. The Innovations, who again, stated that they alone were true members of the church, while those in grave sin were excluded. The Gnostics, other elitists who stated that only they had true enlightenment. The Waldensians, the Hussites, and later, of course, the Protestant revolutionaries, new men, as they called them, with new learning. They claimed that they possessed the true gospel in its pristine, primitive, and perfect form. These movements, as well as others, were led by Messiah-like figures who wished to tear down rather than rebuild, for they had to save the church. That was supposedly their mission. The signs of such a revolutionary movement include a total rejection of the present order of things, a desire to separate from the corrupting influence of existing conditions in the church, an effort to build an island, an oasis, where pure Christianity is supposedly recaptured. And in this isolation, a Messiah-like leader becomes the arbiter, the judge of all that is truly orthodox. And such a revolutionary leader begins to promote more absurd, absurd teachings and viewpoints, yet keeps control through fear and suspicion always suggesting that some hostile forces are against the community. And eventually, the revolutionaries are backed into a corner with no hope, offering no remedy, which leads either to a spiritual or a bodily suicide. And like any true radical, they lived and died according to that revolutionary commandment, do what thou wilt. That is the only law. Now, one of the recent revolutionary movements today is something known as Sedevacantism. Sedevacantists, or SVs, we'll sometimes call them, see themselves as the only true Catholics left in the church militant. The SVs, Sedevacantists, are the remnant of the faithful who have not bowed down before the anti Pope in Rome, as they would say, or his imposter puppet cardinals. The SVs, you see, have the secret knowledge they can see what others cannot see. The SVs are the new enlightened men with specialized new learning. Having built independent chapels and schools and seminaries, communities, blogs, and websites, they've established a religious paradise free from any quote-unquote novus ordo corruption. And although they have no head, they nevertheless need to lead the church during these trying times. For the vulnerable traditional Catholic, therefore, who has lived through decades of confusion and mistreatment, significantism provides that easy answer, that easy, simple answer that a number of traditional Catholics are looking for in these confusing times. But in the end, it is sort of a forbidden fruit that brings nothing but despair and spiritual death. And all the whole, the no, although the whole notion of set of seems absolutely and patently absurd, a papal throne being empty for more than five decades, six decades even, and hardly anyone realizes it, this man-made movement nonetheless still has adherents and is even gaining disciples each day. There are reasons why set of a does get adherence. Certainly, there's a crisis of faith within the membership of Holy Mother Church. And as any true revolutionary knows, advantages can be gained in the midst of such turmoil and crisis. Take advantage of crises. The faith of Catholics in the West has been collapsing for years. Moral and doctrinal confusion is very present. And at times, we hear unsound teaching, if not outright error, coming forth from shepherds and theologians. The parishes and schools that couldn't be built fast enough back in the late 40s and 50s in the states are now being closed, merged, and sold to the highest bidder. So-called Catholic hospitals have performed sterilizations, made referrals for abortions, and have rented out whole floors to hospice services, which in some cases, at least, have been accused of practicing euthanasia. Under the pontificate of Pope Pius XII of Holy Memory, The Catholic population in our country doubled in size, just under his pontificate. Today, if you discount the influx of Catholic immigrants from our South, as well as a small amount of new converts, nearly 40% of the Catholics have left the Church in this country in just the last few decades. There has been an exodus from religious life and the Holy Priesthood, and vocations, as we know, have largely plummeted. The vocation crisis is being solved, however, by the fact that less than 25% of our people are going to Mass in the US, while in Europe, so few attend Holy Mass that churches become museums. And into this crisis, this crisis which is real, comes the cantus movement, proselytizing amongst the suffering and dissatisfied traditional Catholic. They give the easy, quick answer. No more suffering, no more confusion, no more mystery. Peter is not confused; they tell us, but has been replaced by a Judas, a false antipope. Our Lord is not just sleeping at Peter's boat and needs to be awakened through pleading prayer. No, the present Church of Rome has mutinied and has been an apostasy since 1958. And so they tell us, leave Babylon, and come out of her. So with that introduction to this topic, I said of a cantism, um, last week we uh, interviewed and also introduced John Salsa, but I didn't get a chance to introduce Robert Cisco, who I've known actually since the year, uh, well, probably 2007 or 2008. Robert Cisco was born and raised in Houston, Texas, and he enjoyed uh, success in a number of businesses, including a successful lending mortgage company. Mr. Sisko converted to the Catholic Church in his 20s, and I can tell you this, he has not lost any of his zeal, his convert's zeal. He quickly became a fervent student of all things Catholic with a special interest in theology and even metaphysics. Mr. Sisko is widely published. He's written lots of articles, and of course, this book, which I mentioned last week, right, this book, which is helped a lot of people, a lot of traditionalists, True Pope False Pope. he wrote this with John Salsa. This is their book and they hope to do a future one and they're working on it as we speak. And also he has done a lot of work with uh, printing in various Catholic traditional newspapers as well. And so with that introduction of Robert, and of course you know John's from last week's introduction, I'd like to begin, by basically asking is there anything from perhaps last week for those who saw the uh, interview how we spoke about ecclesiology as a foundational issue that the set of acantists seem to get wrong but Robert I think you wanted to touch upon more about ecclesiology and how it specifically is gotten wrong by the set of Acantists.
1: Yeah, set of a cantism began as it believes the Pope's not the Pope, but it quickly evolved into the church has defected. So what I wanted to do is begin with, again, reviewing what John went over last week, the visibility of the church, the marks of the church. Then if I can get into heresy, what heresy is opposed to lesser errors. Then how heresy separates a person from the church, the various categories of heresy, and then maybe get into St. Robert Bellarmine. Um, okay. which is, he has been misunderstood greatly by a set of a There's a lot of new material now that's been published in English that helps reveal what his actual position is. So I'd like to get into that too, if we could. Sure. So as far as the review of last week, what the church is, the church is not just individual believers. who profess the true faith. It's a visible juridical society. It's a society with four marks. As John mentioned last week, we say that church is visible. We don't only mean it can be seen, material visibility, it can also be known, formally visible. And what makes the church formally visible are the marks. So the marks are what make the chur- what makes the church knowable as the true church, okay? So the marks one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. There in Thomistic metaphysics, there are four causes of a thing. There's a formal cause, material cause, Efficient cause and the material cause. And the four marks correspond to those four causes. So the oneness is the formal cause. The Catholicity is the material cause, the members dispersed throughout the world. The final cause is the holiness of the church. And the efficient cause is apostolicity, the mark of apostolicity. Now, when I converted to the church, it was actually due to apostolicity, the more I think about it. I was a Protestant, grew up Protestant, kind of drifted away from the Protestant church, went through a conversion in the mid-20s, and met a Catholic who gave me a Catholic Bible. And I opened the Catholic Bible and there was a list of the popes. So I saw John Paul II, it said 1978 1978- dash, he was still Pope. I followed that list all the way to the beginning, it said Peter. And I said, I wonder if that's the same Peter from the Bible. <laughs> so I called the Catholic Church. Sure enough, after a few attempts, I found out that that was the St. Peter from the Bible. So that showed me there was a connection with the church today, the Pope today, and the church throughout history with a whole list of Popes, one after the other. So that showed me the apostolic link of the government. So the church, had, it's apostolic in its government. It's apostolic in its members' of origin. And it's apostolic in its doctrine. So I also discovered apostolic succession, that the apostles, they had successors. They were the bishops. So a bishop ordains a bishop. That bishop ordains another bishop. And that link has also continued to this day. So we again see the apostolic ministry from the time of the apostles to today. And then what I looked into when I was investigating the Catholic Church, is okay, you have the 16th century. Everyone's disagreeing over doctrine. So what was believed before that disagreement? So I looked at the doctrine prior to that. So I looked at that and apost- doctrine as well. So instead of a cantism, they end by denying the apostolic hierarchy. The hierarchy requires validly ordained bishops with jurisdiction. Bishops receive their jurisdiction from, a, from the pope. So if there hasn't been a pope, in 62 years, there's no bishops with jurisdiction. There's no apostolic hierarchy. There's no mark of apostolicity, Mm -hmm. you see? So you have to have a pope to give jurisdiction to the bishops to have the mark of apostolicity. Now, Father Chicada posted a letter in his bulletin written by Bishop Dolan stating that the church no longer has a hierarchy, you see? Mm -hmm. If a church doesn't have a hierarchy, then it no longer exists as Christ founded it. Right. So the church, it leads, the set of accounts leads to the conclusion that the church has defected. Mm-hmm.
0: The gates of hell have won.
1: Yeah, and now when we published our book initially in 2015, very few set of accounts would admit that. But since then, more and more will admit, yes, there's no more hierarchy, no more bishops with jurisdiction. So at least the conclusion, of the gates of hell are prevailed against the church.
0: So you can see maybe why at least a small portion of Cedovacantists have realized that there is no more jurisdiction. So they stay at home. They just they don't even engage in any sort of quasi parish life.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, now Ludwig Ott and Fundamental of Catholic Dogma he made an interesting observation. He said, All the groups who reject the hierarchy end by believing in a visible church. And that's actually what the, what the set of the just now believe in. They believe the church are those who are baptized and profess the true faith. That's partially correct, mm-hmm. but it's those baptized profess the true faith under a legitimate hierarchy. Right. Without the legitimate hierarchy, there's no unity, there's no way of knowing who is in the church and who's not in the church. So the church becomes invisible because who knows who it is that professes the true faith if right. they're not united under the hierarchy.
0: Right, right. So the set of accountants have a Lutheran, Martin Luther like definition of the church. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Think, so it, it ends in the belief the church has defected, there's no way around it. If there hasn't been a pope in 60 years there's no hierarchy the entire visible society of the church defected mm-hmm. and father as i
2: mentioned last time some of the heretics that you mentioned at the beginning of the show already held these errors. i said that the state of the contest errors of today are simply recycled under a new name if you look at the history of heretics They practically Mm -hmm. all claimed that the clergy defected. They practically all claimed that Rome was teaching a new religion. They practically all claimed that there was a true Catholic Church and an apostate Catholic Church. So these Sede scholars, if you will, are nothing special at all. They're simply recycling the errors of their Protestant forefathers.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as uh, as a new error. Been an old era in the past, they're just sort of recycling, right? Um, do we want to get into, when I think about set of acantism instead of cantus, they, they love labeling people heretics. In fact, some tr- even traditional Catholics will just sort of, you know, immediately paint with a broad brush, you know, oh, they're all, he's a heretic, they're a heretic. And I'm wondering if if one of you or either of you could, or both perhaps, just talk about the different levels of maybe teaching that is unsound or is confusing or ambiguous or is offensive to pious ears or there's different levels of falsehood or um, unsound teaching before you actually reach that full bar of, of, of heresy so would you be able to kind of go through that a little bit in terms of the levels before you actually reach full-blown formal heresy? Well, what formal heresy is, full blown heresy
1: is a direct denial of a dogma. So a direct denial of a revealed truth that's been infallibly posed by the truth at by the church as revealed. So a revealed truth infallibly proposed as revealed by the truth. By the I'm sorry, by the church. That's that's a dogma. Heresy has to be a direct denial of a dogma. no additional steps of reasoning. A, ch- a teaching can be ambiguous. A statement can be ambiguous, the Catholic Church subsists in the Church of Christ. or everybody can do phrases that. That's an ambiguous teaching, but it's not heretical. Mm-hmm. It's just ambiguous. There can be teachings that are smacking of heresy. It sounds heretical. There's no Catholic God. That sounds pretty bad, but it's not directly heretical. So there's different levels, also different degrees of certitude. Some teachings are proposed infallibly. Some are just theologically certain. Some are the common opinions, some are probable. So dogma, again, heresy has to be a direct denial of a dogma. And that's a pretty high bar to meet. Mm -hmm. So Vatican II, I don't believe there's any direct heresies in Vatican II. A lot of ambiguity lot of statements that sound heretical but when you read them closely there's usually enough wiggle room so that the proposition itself is not heretical so it's a pretty high bar to reach heresy just on the material just as far as the proposition itself
0: right so but i guess you would add robert that you know even though some conciliar documents or uh, post-conciliar sort of statements, even if they're just ambiguous, that's not obviously <laughs> desirable. And big ambiguity itself, I mean, I'm sure the church would condemn that notion that, that we should never be confusing in the way that we translate the faith to the folks. So, um, So, but even though the church would condemn ambiguity, it's not saying that, that that is outright formal heresy either, those confusing statements that might be made. So, and, 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 why, right. and why is that important? Um, because, again, when the set of acanthus will say, well, he's a heretic, therefore, he's what? I mean, th- th- w- using this sort of hammer of, 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 of claiming heresy makes them able to dismiss or to... Um, remove at least in their own minds from office uh various popes and bishops
1: Mm -hmm. because what they mean by heretic normally is someone who's lost the virtue of faith so enough ambiguous statements enough statements that smack of heresy a reasonable person is going to conclude that person seems like a heretic so it's easy to conclude in your own mind that person's a heretic even if they haven't actually professed heresy or cross the line that the church itself would require for them to be deemed a heretic in the external form. So it may be that someone has someone has lost the virtue of faith, they're making ambiguous statements, and you might conclude that you might be correct in saying I think they're a heretic, but it doesn't mean they're a notorious heretic or a heretic in the church's judgment. So that's what we have today. We have popes and bishops saying things and doing things that lead to the conclusion that they must have lost the faith. Mm-hmm. And so because they conclude they lost the faith, they conclude they're heretics. Mm-hmm. But they might be heretics in internal form, but they're not notorious heretics in the external form. And John can go through how heresy severs a person from the church. There's internal bonds. There's external bonds. The sin of heresy severs the internal bonds. You can be separated from the church spiritually, but until the external bonds are violated, you can still remain a Catholic like, legally. So none of the popes have severed the external bonds, even if they have, and God alone knows, severed the internal bonds to the sin of heresy.
0: Right. Okay, so John, may, maybe you could pick up on that and talk about those bonds, those three bonds that sort of tells us sort of who's in and who's connected to the body and who's connected to the, to the, to the spirit, and go ahead with sure. that.
2: Yeah, it's important to recognize the distinction between the legal and the spiritual. Um, When I say legal, I mean who is a legal member of the church versus who is spiritually united to the church. There's an important distinction there, and the theologians distinguish it by internal bonds and external bonds. The internal bonds or interior bonds that would unite one spiritually to, to Christ, to the mystical body, are the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, which are infused into the soul uh, through baptism, either through the sacrament of baptism or a desire for baptism. Um, That means one is spiritually united, ordered to the church in a spiritual sense. And in fact, it's important to point out that it's absolutely necessary to have these three interior virtues for salvation. Absolutely necessary to be in spiritual union with Christ for salvation. Um, If one has faith and hope, but not charity, because he's lost the virtue of charity through mortal sin, a mortal sin that is not against the faith, uh, he would only be imperfectly united so to speak, to Christ. He'd be lacking charity in, the, in that state would be damned if he died in that state. Mm-hmm. A sin against the faith, if it is a mortal sin against the faith, now you've spiritually severed yourself from the church by losing faith, hope, and charity, all three, you see? So the three virtues, the interior virtues, which spiritually, spiritually unite one to the church are absolutely necessary for salvation. Okay, Um, but it's different to compare the interior virtues from these external bonds. It is the external bonds that unite one to the body of the church. And theologians such as Bellarmine, um, St. Pius X, among others, uh, made a metaphorical distinction between the body and the soul of the church, and it's important to point out that these are only metaphors. We're not saying that there are two churches. There's only one church, as as Pius XII taught, but we're using this in a metaphorical sense, right, to say that there's a spiritual union and a legal union, so the three external bonds which make one a legal member of the church are union with uh, the profession of faith, so the unity of faith, Unity of worship, the seven sacraments, and unity of governance, right? Faith, worship, and, and governance. As Christ said, um, preach, baptize, and command, right, in the, in the Great Commission. The state of Acontis err primarily in their misunderstanding of the profession of faith, which is this first exterior or external bond. Of the Sadivacontists believe that this exterior bond of the profession means that somebody must properly hold to or articulate the, the Catholic faith. And if they don't, if they say things that are materially heretical, right, because they're public, they would, by that act, sever their, their bond to the church. They no longer have the profession of faith. They're professing something that's Heretical, and hence it's not part of the profession. That is not at all what the profession of faith means. It's an entirely perverted understanding of the profession of faith. The social bond of the profession of faith happens at baptism, and it means that one is incorporated into the church by water baptism, and at the same time, while baptized in the Catholic Church, that person or the parents and godparents on the infant's behalf makes a public profession of faith this is very important it's not just a valid baptism alone okay that that uh, creates the social bond it's the water baptism coupled with the profession of faith which occurs in the catholic church that creates the social bond uniting one to the catholic church and the reason is because A Protestant could be validly baptized outside of the Catholic Church. But notice that a profession of faith does not accompany that Protestant baptism. And hence, even though they have the baptismal character on the soul, and if if it's a valid baptism, they are washed away of original sin and are spiritually united to Christ because at that point, the person would receive, assuming it's, a, it's an infant above the age of reason or some of good the, the will, they're receiving faith, hope and charity. So there is a spiritual uh, uh, orientation for the Protestant to the church. They're in a state of grace. If it's an infant baptized in a Protestant sect validly, they're in a state of grace, but the social bond to the Catholic church does not exist, you see. And that's why we would say that they may be validly baptized, but technically would not be legally recognized by the church. Now, some theologians that Robert and I have read sometimes use the term member. They're members of the church, um, but they still mean what I'm saying. They're spiritually ordered to the church without being legally known. I mean, they're not legally known by, by the bishop of their diocese, so to speak. And so... It's, it's this social bond, okay, that is created by baptism into the Catholic Church that is the profession of faith, not the person's articulation of Catholic doctrine, okay? They can be in all kinds of material errors in their understanding of an articulation of Catholic doctrine, but the church says if they're validly baptized in the Catholic Church with a profession of faith, that social bond exists, It doesn't, it's not just that it's deemed to exist, it actually does exist, and even if that person manifests heresy in some way, so long as that heresy is not legally recognized by the church as heretical, the social bond remains. It is not severed. It is not severed by external manifestations of heresy, by heretical statements, by heretical gestures, by pagan worship, and anything else they want to throw at you, because the bond was created and it hasn't been severed by by notorious heresy. So hopefully that that helps clarify what the profession of faith is. When we hear the word profession, we immediately think of we're (laughs) orally professing the faith. That's not what it means. It means baptism incorporated in the catholic church with the profession either by the godparents or or by the adult new catholic that's where the social bond is formed
1: so, it's formed there and it's sustained by subjection to the teaching authority of the church so it begins the baptism profession and it's sustained by remaining in the church and submitting to the authority of the church's magisterium that's how it's sustained how is it ruptured it's ruptured by notorious heresy Heresy that's recognized as notorious by the church. That's how it's ruptured.
2: And when we say sustained, Father, it's important to note that, and there, there have been historical cases of Catholics who, even under the reign of Pius X, and we have an example of this in the book, where a Catholic couple uh, stopped going to Mass. They raised their children in Protestant schools. In fact, they even the parents even began attending Protestant services, okay, was the social bond sustained in that case? Guess what the Pope said? Yes, it was because the people, even though they were quite confused and even though they were going to Protestant services and Protestant schools, they still identified as Catholics. There was still this external adhesion, if you will, to the Catholic church as their rule of faith, you Mm -hmm. see? And so as Robert says, you know, sustaining the formal bond is not very difficult to do. If you identify as a Catholic and you're a Catholic in name only, then guess what? Say to the contest, that suffices. Yes. That suffices.
0: So um, that phrase, uh, once a Catholic, always a Catholic, in a sense, they used to say that in the past. Uh, There's there's some reality there. And even if you have some, again, I guess the term is notorious that we're going to go through, I think, that would, be the key issue but just you know a lot of catholics today they're going to tell you well what about those catholic politicians you know those catholic politicians out there who are anti-life they they, they, they support the most horrible legislation but they go to communion every sunday or they go to mass and they consider themselves catholic so mm-hmm. how, how would you answer like people who would bring that objection up because they haven't i would bring up Church. they have an openly yeah, would,
1: church go ahead rob i'll bring up historical examples erasmus of rotterdam he was a theologian brilliant theologian he wasn't just a layman he was a priest he denied he mocked confession to a priest he um says blasphemous to call the holy ghost god bellarmine has multiple chapters on him in his book on the word of god he basically shows that erasmus was an arian erasmus Favored the Arians. He used their interpretation of the controversial text of the Bible. He said the Arians weren't heretics. He criticized the fathers of the church who attacked the Arians. Bellarmine basically shows that he was an Arian, although he didn't come out and actually say it. He just stopped short of that. But he, again, defended them, uh, used their interpretation of the controversial texts, and he criticized the Catholics at the time who were fighting the Arians. So that's about as close as you can get. In, in spite of that, Paul, Pope Paul III, who called the Council, uh, Council of Trent, he wanted to make Rassus a cardinal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. These were all public. His errors were in books, public. So that's, that's one example of someone who is publicly professing errors and even some heresies, right. but he remained a member of the church in good standing, according to the Pope himself. So okay. you can get away with a lot. Without being a notorious heretic. And,
2: and, and that's right. And, and Rob and I have a number of other examples, but I think the bottom line is, is, is materially as materially heretical as Erasmus' opinions were, and, and Michel de Bay and, and Rotterdam and, and others, they didn't openly leave the church. They didn't openly declare that they are now following another rule of faith. Okay, so in spite of all of their heretical uh, teachings, which in the, in, as, as the matter of heresy is there, because they didn't openly leave the church, they didn't sever the social bond, that profession of faith at, at, at their baptism. And hence the church, at least up to the <clears throat> point, um, uh, did not recognize their, their heresies as notorious, as sufficient to sever the bond. It's ultimately
0: comes to the judgment of the church. So I guess you could say that a person could, at least materially for sure, be saying heretical things, writing heretical documents or books, and yet remained in that social bond that you talked about, John. They continue therefore to have that connection to the body of the church, even if they have you know, maybe even lost the faith, uh, mm-hmm. sinned against the faith. So maybe, one of you could go through, just because you're a heretic doesn't put you outside the church. So what would be the levels of actual heresy that are present that the church discusses?
2: Well, there are, there are four categories uh, of heretics. Okay, these are individuals that would be called heretics. Uh, formal, uh, material, occult, and, and notorious. So Rob and I can, can maybe explain these in, in greater depth. I think it's important first to make a distinction between a formal heretic and a material heretic, because these words, as you said, Father, are thrown quite a, around quite a bit. Both formal and material heretics are public non-Catholics. They are not members of the church. That's why we call them heretics, okay? They are public non-Catholics because they both have chosen another rule of faith. They do not acknowledge the Catholic Church in the external forum as the infallible rule of faith. So that not only makes them heretics, and there's a distinction that I'll mention in a, in a bit, but they would be notorious heretics. And the reason why a formal and a material heretic is also a notorious heretic is because the Church would legally recognize that they do not have the social bond. You see that they are not in union with the church church's the infallible rule of faith. So that makes them notorious heretics. Their separation from the church would be legally recognized by the church. There would be no investigation that the church would require. Okay, But the distinction between a formal heretic and a material heretic is, is, is the following. The formal heretic... And again, we're speaking in the abstract now because we really can't judge the internal form. The church itself doesn't judge the internal form. But a formal heretic is one who has sufficient knowledge that the church is the infallible rule and, and rejects that rule for another rule. And so they would be deemed culpable, okay? And the church would would presume that guilt in, in certain circumstances. But that's the distinction. When we talk about the word formal, we're referring to the will, okay? We're referring to what is in the will and hence what is culpable. The material heretic, on the other hand, is invincibly ignorant that the church is the infallible rule of faith. Um, He or she does not follow the church as the infallible rule of faith, but they're invincibly ignorant. Uh, They're not culpable for the rejection. And so they would still be considered a heretic because they have, another rule of faith but they wouldn't be guilty of the sin of heresy and it's important to mention we're talking about what's in the external forum okay neither formal or material heretics have the external bonds but the material heretics could theoretically be united to the soul of the church by having the virtues of faith hope and charity because remember they haven't sinned. They're not culpable in choosing another rule. And hence, they could, if they were validly baptized, they could have the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And B.O., a number of theologians acknowledge this, this possibility. While the formal heretic, on the other hand, because he is culpable, it was an act of his will in rejecting the church as the rule of faith, he is not only uh, separated because he has no external bonds, he doesn't have the interior bonds either through through the sin. So that's a distinction between formal and material. Rob, did you have anything else to add there?
1: Yeah, let me read uh, Bio's definition of formal and material public heretics. He says, Formal heretics are those to whom the authority of the church is sufficiently known. Material heretics are those who, affected by invincible ignorance concerning the church herself, choose in good faith another rule to determine what they are to believe. The heresy of material heretics is not imputed as a sin. On the contrary, it is possible for them to have even that supernatural faith, which is the commencement and root of all justification. For they might believe all the principal articles explicitly and believe the others not explicitly but implicitly by the disposition of their mind, and the good intention they have of believing all truths whatsoever are sufficiently proposed to them as revealed by God. Consequently, they still belong by desire to the body of the church and merit the other conditions necessary for salvation. Nevertheless, because we are concerned with real incorporation into the visible church of Christ, our thesis does not distinguish between formal and material heretics, meaning public formal material. Understanding the latter material heretics according to the notion of material heresy that we have just explained, which alone is the proper and genuine sense of the term. For if by material heretic you understand one who professes dependence upon the magisterium of the church in matters of faith, a Catholic, but denies something defined by the church because he is ignorant of the fact that it was defined. Or holds an opinion contrary to Catholic teaching because he mistakenly thinks it is taught by the church, then it would be utterly absurd to put material heretics outside the body of the true church. But this would also be to distort the, to store completely the true meaning of the word. For a sin is called material only when all the elements of that sin are present materially, but without advertence or deliberate choice. Now, heresy by its nature, requires departure from the rule of the Ecclesiastical Magisterium. In the case cited, there is no departure. There is only an error of fact about what the rule dictates. Such an error cannot be heresy, even materially so. So what he's saying there essentially is material heretics are those who choose another rule of faith. Maybe it's a Protestant minister. Maybe it's their private interpretation of the Bible. They choose it in good faith. They never left the church. They were baptized outside the church in a Baptist church. That's what a material heretic is. Material heretic, properly so-called, is not a Catholic who professes heresy in in a state of innocence, which is what a lot of people think that is. And then when they read quotations saying material heretics outside the church, they conclude that a Catholic who says something heretical is outside the church. Well, that's distorting the meaning of the term. Mm -hmm. Yes, because...
2: A Catholic cannot be either a formal or material heretic. If he were a formal or material heretic, he would not be a Catholic. Those terms cannot be properly applied to a Catholic when properly understood. They are referring in both cases to a public non-Catholic.
1: But a Catholic can be in formal heresy. He can be guilty of the sin of heresy. So formal heresy, the sin is one thing, being a formal heretic, public heretic is something different.
0: Okay, so it's exactly. a little
1: bit confusing, but a Catholic can be guilty of the formal sin of heresy, obviously, he can lose the faith and remain in the church if he hasn't uh, severed the social bonds. But a formal material heretic publicly, that's something different.
2: Right. And that's a good lead into to the, the next two categories, Father, because after formal and material heretics, which are public non-Catholics, we get to the occult heretics, heretic and the notorious heretic and as robert said unlike formal and material heretics who are non-catholics public non-catholics the occult heretic can really only be referred to a catholic okay because it is a catholic who has severed himself from the soul of the church by sinning against the faith and again we're talking about this in the abstract because the church doesn't judge internals. We're speaking in an abstract way here. Uh, a cult heretic is a Catholic who is a Catholic. He's a legal member of the church. He's united to the church by the three exterior bonds. But and in an act of his will, he has severed himself from the soul of the church by committing a mortal sin of heresy against the faith. And it's, and it's, that, it's that's why he would be considered a, a an occult heretic who is a formal heretic. An occult heretic is a formal heretic. Now, there's another distinction I think that's important. When we talk about occult heretics who are Catholics in the external order, they're legal members of the church, but they're guilty of the formal sin of heresy and hence are formal heretics, their heresy can either be entirely hidden, can be secret, and so it's, it, it's, it's only matter of the will, he's denied or doubted a dogma willfully in his mind, or or the heresy can be externally manifested in words and in actions, but unless the church legally recognizes those external manifestations as notorious, he remains an occult heretic. So somebody who mortally sins against the faith as as a Catholic and even externalizes his heresy in the external forum remains an occult heretic if the church does not legally recognize the heresy as notorious so, so a very important distinction
0: yeah it is so so i I think I misunderstood that earlier on. I thought the occult heretic was he might have shared it with a couple of people, you know, maybe in quiet. So he did externalize. But you're saying that the occult heretic, it could be even manifested and known by many, but it hadn't reached the level of full-blown notorious. Correct. So I guess we're going to have to go and find out then what is notorious then, it?
2: That's a great question and, and notorious you know we use the word notorious in our in our English language right to mean something that's that's widely known you know he's a notorious drinker or womanizer right. or something like that but in the ecclesiastical sense notorious means what is officially recognized by the church officially lawfully legally and the only way the church recognizes heresy as notorious is either the act itself has to be notorious by a notoriety of fact, or the church cuts off the person by a legal declaration, which is considered notoriety uh, in law. So there's a no- notorious by fact and notorious by law. We can talk about a little bit about what that means. Um, the Catholic politician, for example, or any any let's we could say non-cleric uh, who would publicly defect from the church and then you know let's say they join a non-catholic sect that is one case I think in canon law where for a non-cleric that that could suffice as something that's notorious in fact if this person is a public figure and this person has publicly proclaimed that they have now chosen another rule of faith that they are no longer Catholic, that they do not identify themselves any longer as a Catholic. There would be no further investigation that the church would need to do. And in that theoretical sense, again, we're only speaking theoretically and abstractly, in that theoretical sense, we could concede that the church could lawfully recognize that person as a notorious heretic by a notoriety of fact just because they have so they have so visibly uh, and publicly separated themselves from the church that there's no question they're no longer Catholic. But I would caveat this, and Rob, you can jump in, for a cleric, under or for anybody, in fact, who holds ecclesiastical office in the church, even if that person publicly defects, look at canon law, look at uh, canon 194.2, In the case of one who holds an ecclesiastical office in the church, even if they publicly defect from the church, that act alone is insufficient to sever the social bond. Canon law of the church says only a declaration can effectuate their removal from office and their loss of office, you see. So in the conciliar Pope's case, we don't have the material elements of heresy. We have, don't have the formal elements of heresy. And, and, and by the way, they don't even have the authority to make these judgments if, if we had the elements, you, you see. So, uh, again, Im- important, important distinctions.
1: Right. Yeah, I well, would just to clarify a notorious fact. For a fact to be deemed notorious by the church, it has to be so certain that no further event investigation is required if any further investigation is required, the fact is not notorious. Mm -hmm. So if there's any investigation required to establish if the person is pertinacious, the fact is not notorious. Now, the church does recognize certain acts as sufficient for notorious heresy. That act would be leaving the church, joining a non-Catholic sect. If someone commits that act, the church says, yes, that suffices for notoriety. So if the church then verified that that fact exists, that the person did join the non-Catholic sect, that would suffice for notoriety of fact. Short of that, it's difficult. It and in the case
2: lot. of clerics, uh, there's always going to be a process. And th- th- this is a long-standing teaching, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You can go back to Bellarmine and even pre-Bellarmine all the way through Pius Twelfth. I mean, they all say that the way one is severed from the church is either they openly leave or are cut off. Okay. Openly leave is is a notorious act, okay, that's established by a notoriety of fact. And then being cut off is a declaration of the church's judgment, right? Which is, is is notorious by a notoriety of law. And in the case of, of clerics there would always be warnings, okay, to establish pertinacity. In fact, the church would have to first establish the material elements. Is this person professing material heresies? And then they would have to be warned that they were doing so, that they were contrary to a dogma of the faith, that, that it's truly heretical. And if the cleric would still uh, maintain his obstinance in the face of these warnings, then the church could declare heresy, and it's through that declaration that there would be uh, the severing of, of the social bond. But that is a case where investigation is required, unlike the case where the, you know, it's so clear that your church would legally recognize it without an investigation, always in the case of a cleric and this is an act of fraternal charity by the brethren, right? We would have to confront the cleric uh, uh, with his heresy and determine whether he were truly pertinacious, whether not only the matter was there, but the form of heresy was there as well. And if he would remain obstinate in the face of those warnings, only then would he be cut off from the church.
0: Okay. So with all this being stated then regarding, you know, occult heresy and versus notorious heresy, and even the case of a cleric, you know, really a ecclesial involvement um, uh, in a more formal way, then how could you lose your office then? I mean, how could a person lose their office as a bishop, as a priest, or as a pope? What, what would be the process where you would actually say he is no longer what he was in terms of an office?
1: If I could back up just a little bit, just to read a few quotes to confirm what John said about occult heresy, because this is an important point. What, what these quotes are going to say is that heresy, occult heresy, is either heresy that's entirely hidden or heresy that has been manifest externally but is not notorious. I just want to confirm that with these quotes. The first one is from Sebastian Fragi, the members of Clazy in 1937. He says heresy can be a cult per se, if it is without any external act, or a cult per accidents, if it was externally manifested but did not attain to notoriety. In the question under consideration, the same, with well, the question that he's talking about there is are notorious, are occult heretics members of the church? In the question under consideration, the same norm applies to both. For although in the second case, the heresy has been externally manifest, it is nevertheless a cult if it cannot here and now be juridically proven. Okay, so anything less than notorious heresy is reduced to a cult. Uh, Let's see, let me read Cardinal Bio. Earlier I read his his explanation of a cult of material and formal heresy. Here's his explanation of a cult notorious. Heretics are divided into occult and notorious. Occult heretics are, in the first place, those who by a purely internal act, disbelieve dogmas of faith proposed by the church. Those also are occult who do do indeed manifest their heresy by external, external signs, but not by a public notorious profession. You will easily understand that many men of our time fall into the latter category. Those, namely, who either doubt or positively disbelieve matters of faith and do not disguise their state of mind in the private affairs of life, but who have never expressly renounced the faith of the church, and when they are asked categorically about their religion, they declare of their own accord that they are Catholics. One final quote. This is from Father Glees. In a strictly juridical sense, we speak only about occult and notorious heresy, and the notion of public heresy is reduced to that of occult heresy. In this juridical sense, which is the sense used in canon law, any external act that has not been noted by the authority of the church is occult. Okay, so it's important. Anything less than notorious heresy is reduced to occult. The reason that's important is because a set of a will quote theologians saying, a cult heresy is heresy that's known to six people. Say something like that. You'll find theologians say it. And they'll say anything above that is notorious. No. Anything less than notorious is reduced to a cult. And only notorious heresy
0: serves the external bond. Okay, so again, I guess we get back then to it takes a lot <laughs> to, to kind of reach the level where you're removed from office. Um, so for the set of a cantus, they, they always talk about you're automatically gone. You know, this guy, this pope lost it automatically because of what he did. So what is it with this procedure or how does an individual who is a cleric, a bishop, a priest, or even a pope, how do they actually lose their office? You want to explain that, John?
2: Sure. And I think we touched on it a a little bit. Um, The church would first have to determine whether, in fact, the material element of heresy exists. As Robert was explaining before, it takes an awful lot to directly deny a dogma, okay? Something that is in the deposit of faith that the church has proposed as revealed truth, okay? So the material element would have to be there. That's a judgment of the church, And then the formal element would also have to be there, and that would be established through warnings. This comes from Bellarmine and and Suarez and many other theologians who've talked about the process of the loss of ecclesiastical office. Uh, The person would be confronted with the fact that they are espousing material heresies. Do you recognize, are you doing it with full consent of your your will? Are you pertinacious, pertinacious? Are you incorrigible? Uh, if the church establishes that, that the, that, the, that the individual is not recanting and correcting their position, uh, and, and, and remember you know, the, the, the four cardinals who were you know, preparing the table for a potential uh, canonical warning of Pope Francis, that unfortunately has not yet happened. But when they talked about a formal correction, that's what they were referring to. They were referring to issuing the Pope formal warnings, which, by the way, this is done in in charity. This is done in fraternal charity. We're not saying that the church by this process exercises any juridical or coercive authority over the Pope. St. Thomas says this is not only an act of charity, but clerics are obliged to act this way. We're obliged to warn our superiors because they're in the greater danger. So all of this, the, the warnings process happens out of fraternal charity, in the hopes that the, the man will would renounce his, his errors. But if in fact he does not and he's established to be pertinacious, then at that point the church can exercise course of authority or even over a pope uh, and declare him uh, a heretic who has lost his office. As Pope Innocent has said, as Pope Adrian VI has said, the pope essentially, effectively judges himself in, in that case.
1: Yeah, but the coercive authority will be exercised only when he ceases to be pope. So the church can never exercise coercive authority while he remains pope. That's an important point. But Cajetan teaches that, let me read this quote from Cajetan about the necessary warnings and what they accomplished. Human judgments, he says, are of two kinds. Some determined by natural or divine law, some by positive law. The form of human judgment For a heretic was determined by divine law, so that he is to be avoided after the first and second admonition. So the way human reason determines if someone's a heretic is by warning them. That's how the church determines it, by warning them. Because what is pertinacity? Heretical pertinacity, as Gary LaGrange explains, is not directed immediately against revealed truth. It's immediately against the infallible authority of the church. That's what's Pertinacity is immediately directed against so if a pope was to fall into heresy obviously the cardinals could not define the doctrine and then propose it infallibly to him make him accept it but if the doctrine was already infallibly defined by the church what the cardinals or bishops could do is provide him sufficient proof that the church has already infallibly defined this doctrine as an act of charity of external correction and if he resisted that, he would then be resisting the infallible authority of the church who already defined it. So that's how the warning would take place. The warning would reveal whether or not he is knowingly now, because it's been presented to him, rejecting a dogma that's been defined by the church, rejecting the infallible authority of the church. That's what the warning would accomplish.
0: Okay, so the, the set of acanthists would say, and you answered a bit, but maybe just a little bit more You can never judge the Pope. You're not in a position of authority, so out of charity you can correct. But how can you actually say, you're no longer Pope now? Or or when can the the church say, we withdraw from you? And therefore, then we can condemn you because you're no longer Pope. And
2: and all the theological opinions that Bellerman talks about, really the purpose of all those opinions was to try to answer that question, Father. How can the church judge the Pope while not judging the Pope. And, and, and Bellarmine, and he's not the only one, but Bellerman does make a distinction between what he calls a discretionary judgment uh, and a coercive judgment. As both Rob and I have said, this process is not coercive over the Pope because no one has jurisdiction or authority over the Pope. All this is done uh, in, in a process that Bellerman calls discretionary. It's discretionary because the church has the discretion to judge whether the material element of heresy exists and whether the Pope is obstinate in refusing to submit to the magisterium that already defined that doctrine. That's in the church's discretion because the Pope isn't above revealed truth. No one's above the Pope in terms of authority on earth, but he himself is not above revealed truth. So Bellarmine was very careful to make a distinction between what he called the discretionary judgment, which establishes pertinacity, as Rob has said, is still not coercive over the Pope, okay? But once pertinacity is established, okay, there's different theories about when exactly the Pope would lose his office. But when he does lose his office, at that point, he's not only no longer the Pope, he's no longer a Catholic and hence the church can then exercise coercive authority over him, and that happens by punishing him. You can, t- you can go to, to Cajetan, John of St. Thomas, Bellarmine, Suarez, etc. They talk about a human judgment that would follow the loss of office, which would be punishment, mm-hmm. and the man would be justly punished because he would no longer be above the authority of, of, of the cardinals who would be carrying out that judgment.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, regarding the discretionary judgment, Bellamy explains what's required for a true judgment. He says there's two parts required. The, it needs the authority to investigate the matter and reach a judgment of what should be done. It also needs the coercive power to then punish the person and force them to accept the penalty imposed on them. That's a true judgment. A discretionary judgment is only the first part, it's just the authority to investigate a matter and reach a conclusion, no coercive power. So if the church were to investigate a pope and warn him, it would just use a judgment of reason to determine if he was truly a heretic, if that were to happen, according to Bellarmine, he would cease to be pope once the church had established that. Then he would be notorious with notoriety of fact if the church had used its reason, the bishops, to establish their satisfaction that he was a heretic at that point no further investigations are required he's notorious with notoriety of fact he would cease to be pope that's how bellarmine would explain let me read a quote to you real quick we just explained what notorious and occult heresy is this is from bellarmine's chapter on our occult heretics members of the church he begins by quoting augustine who refers to occult heretics throughout this chapter as enemies of the church these aren't just Catholics who have a problem with the dogma; can't, can't accept it. These are enemies of the church. The Freemasons who infiltrated the church, they're occult heretics. Okay? So this it's in this chapter he says this. He says, it is certain, whatever one thinks, that an occult heretic, if he be a bishop or even the supreme pontiff, does not lose his jurisdiction, dignity, or title as head of the church until either... He publicly separates himself from the church or being convicted of heresy is separated against his will. So one of two things are required for the heretical pope to lose his office. He publicly separates himself from the church or he's convicted of heresy by the church. If he's not convicted of heresy, he remains pope. So the conviction is the discretionary judgment. And if the conviction doesn't happen, he remains pope.
2: And think, about important important, think about how powerful that word is. Bellerman actually re- uses the word "conviction" in, in the Latin. If you think about even our civil uh, trials, where you have a jury who's the trier of fact and, and renders a verdict of guilty, that is what's happening in the discretionary judgment. And Bellerman clearly says that the pope, the pope, is being subject to this process, not not in a coercive sense, uh, uh, but in in a discretionary sense, where a conviction is reached remember one is innocent until proven guilty and therefore this man is being subjected to this discretionary process as pope because he hasn't now, yet but, been convicted
1: and the conviction is not a determination that he already lost his office it's a con- condition for the loss of office to take place Substance. if he's not convicted of heresy and he doesn't leave the church he remains pope
2: that's right. a great point, because the Vicantus often say he already lost his office, and the Declaration is only to affirm what's happened in the past. No, mm-hmm. Bellarmine wouldn't use the word conviction then, because the Pope is innocent until convicted, which means he didn't already
1: lose his office.
2: In right. fact, he hasn't not only lost that, his
1: office yet. Not, not only that, he says the Pope remains Pope until one of two things happen. He publicly separates from the Church, or he's convicted of heresy. Right. So if he doesn't publicly separate... He remains pope until he's convicted. The conviction is whether or not the sitting pope is a heretic. If that conclusion is reached, then he ceases to be pope. matter of fact, St. Alphonsus uses that actual word. He uses the word condition in his explanation. Let me read that to you real quick. He's talking about a pope being deposed. He said, it should first be noted that the superiority of the pope over a council does not extend to the dubious pope in a time of a schism when there is serious doubt about the legitimacy of his election, because then everyone must submit to the council as defined by the Council of Constance. The same must be said of a pope who would be manifestly and exteriorly heretical, not occult and mentally. However, others argue more accurately that in this case, the pope cannot be deprived of his authority by the council as if it were above him, but that he is deposed immediately by Christ when the condition of this deposition, declaration of a council, is carried out as required. So he calls it a condition, the loss of office.
0: Right. So I think it's important, because uh, I, I got it wrong too. I mean, the occult thing is not just this hidden sort of in the privacy of one's own mind and you will, know, or even amongst them cadre of three or four subtle sort of uh her- heretical thinkers, a cult can be well known, manifested even, but yep. has not reached a level of notorious when obviously pertinacity and things like that enter into play is that would, would that be a proper way to think about it that's, that's yeah. the key
1: distinction yep. that's yep. the key distinction. Anything less than notorious is a cult? Only notorious heresy severs the bonds, and no no set of acantus who knows his faith is going to say these popes are notorious heretics. Bishop Sanborn doesn't. Matter of fact, you know he has a different theory on the pope, but he admits they're all they've all been legal members of the church.
0: Right, the pope so, and the
1: legal members of the church.
0: Right, right. So you can have literally an occult heretic being. Uh, continuing in office as a major cleric within the church, even the Pope. And, an- I would,
2: and I would say, Father, we wouldn't even go so far as to call them occult heretics, because if the heresy isn't notorious, we don't judge the internal form. Remember when I said the occult heretic, we were talking about an abstraction there? Right. If it is one who maintains the social bond of the church, even if they are in uh, material heresy, we would only say they're either an ignorant Catholic or a Catholic who's in material error but we generally wouldn't call them an occult heretic, even though they might be. I mean, if they've sinned against the faith interiorly, they would be an occult heretic, but that's something that we don't know because it deals with the internal forum.
0: Right, excellent. Well, I hope to uh, do a few questions if that's all right. Um, So let's do a few questions that John or Robert can answer. The first one is, could one or both of your guests explain set a privationism is mm-hmm. this a possibility question mark? And if so, could a Catholic hold this position today and still be in good standing? So this is not set of a cantism per se. this is set of mm-hmm. privationism. Where there's something lacking in terms of that person no. truly being Pope. So maybe you could explain what set of privationism means and how it's different and then could a person kind of hold that position and still be a Catholic?
1: Okay Yeah, this is the position the Bishop Sanborn holds, and almost hardly anyone understands. It. It's kind of complicated. So a set of uh, privationism means that all the bishops it's more than just that the Pope's not the Pope. it's that none of the bishops are bishops. They hold the office materially, not formally. So what Sanborn says is that they hold their office legally. The Pope has been legally elected or legally, now the election doesn't actually make the person pope. The election designates the person who is to be pope, and then Christ makes him pope, okay? So Sanborn says, yes, he's been legally elected and designated, but he hasn't received the authority from Christ. He says the other bishops, they've also been legally appointed because the pope, who legally holds the office, he can legally appoint them. So, therefore, they legally hold the office also, but they lack the authority of the office. Now, an Episcopal see is a legally established see with rights and duties and privileges that apply to the one who legally occupies the see. So, it's just like an office in a, in a company. So, you have the president, vice president, the vice president dies, I hire somebody else. He now is the vice president. He has the authority of that vice president's office. Mm-hmm. The offices of the church are the same. They're legally set up C's. When someone's legally appointed, they receive the authority of that office. Bishop Sanborn is saying is they don't receive that authority, not just because they're heretics. He said it's because they had the hidden intention to undermine the faith when they were appointed, and therefore that's why they didn't receive the authority. Now the church, of course, has never taught any such thing. That's a complete novelty. So he says they had the hidden intentions. They didn't receive it. How would anyone know? Even if that was, how would you know someone had the hidden intention to undermine the faith? So the theory is really just grasping at straws, trying to find some way to save the visibility of the church. The problem with it is the hierarchy has to have authority for the mark of apostolicity. It's not just that people are sitting in the office. There's people, there's the Orthodox sitting in legally established sees as well, and they're usurpers. So it's not enough to have a bishop in a legally established see. He has to possess the authority of that see for there to be an apostolic hierarchy. So that's the problem with it. So, no, you can't hold that position. Well, it's a, it's
2: a total legal fiction because Bishop Sanborn is, is creating a false distinction between a legal member of the church who has a legal office. He's a legal office holder in Sanborn's theory without having any of the rights and duties and privileges of the office that he legally holds. That's a total, that's a total invention. It, it's a novelty and it's never been taught and it's contrary to common sense. Right. But what his theory also says is that you know, he would maintain that you know this notion, we haven't talked about it yet, of universal and peaceful acceptance you know he would say that that just proves that there was a valid election but not a valid pope absolutely not that is false the universal and peaceful acceptance is caused by the fact that we have a valid pope not just a valid election and by the way the universal and peaceful uh, acceptance doctrine says even if there were defects or canonical irregularities in the election doesn't matter, they're healed in the root because once the man is accepted by the Pope, it's the fact that he is Pope that's causing the UPA, if you will. So Sanborn's error is exposed
0: on many different levels. That was well to answer both of you. Uh, this question this person, I've, I've heard they changed the words of consecration from many to all during Vatican II. Was this true? And secondly, was this heretical? So I guess. It was changed by- it was changed by ISIL.
1: The translation by ISIL. Vatican II didn't change it. That was, came out with the new mass in 69, but it wasn't what Paul VI promulgated. It was what ISIL, how they translated
0: it. So it didn't the come from the Pope of translators. The original Latin from Paul VI, the 69 missile was pro multis for many, but the ISIL English translation, they made it for all, which obviously is problematic, but... I wouldn't necessarily label that as formally heretical. It's just a bad translation that could mislead people for sure. Uh, but that's, it's been changed. They, they corrected mm-hmm. kind of it. Nice. Yeah.
1: What yes, is, well, it wasn't Vatican II or the Pope. It was the, the translators in multiple countries. They translated it
0: wrong. So what is the church's position on the individuals who want to be baptized into the church, their catechus, catechus, but are not yet baptized, are they part of the body of Christ in an invisible way, but not in a visible way yet?
1: No, no. Nope. Well, they're definitely not members of the church right. by baptism desire. They can be joined to the church by sanctifying grace in an imperfect way, but they're definitely not actual members. You have to be baptized to be an actual member. You have to have the character to be an actual member. Right. But if they have so, the Baptist, but they can, uh, but it's uh, possible of
2: uh, if they have the baptism of desire, though, which the Council of Trent acknowledges, and we've we've talked about this and written about it in, in our book, the church acknowledges the possibility that through an act of the will, if somebody knows that the sacrament uh, of, of, of baptism is salvation and they truly desire it, you know, the catechumens, for, for example, um, God could infuse faith, open charity into their soul by an act of, of the will. I mean, only God knows if this happens, but the church does acknowledge that possibility. That does not make them a member of the church, as Robert says, because they don't have the indelible mark and, and, and you know, coupled with that external bond of the profession of, of, of faith, uh, you need both to have the social bond as we, we talked about, but they could be in a state of grace and hence spiritually ordered. Some of the theologians right. say they pertain to or are ordered to or oriented to the church. Again, proving that it's absolutely necessary to have the theological virtues, the interior virtues, but not necessarily uh, uh, to have the, uh, the external bonds to be saved.
0: Wonderfully said. Another question, Mm -hmm. how does the church officially recognize the break of the social bond, which you mentioned, John, especially, who does this legal recognition in the church? The Pope? If a former Catholic declares that he or she no longer considers themselves as Catholics, is this an automatic process?
1: It's a good question. If If they commit the act, if they join a non Catholic sect, they have committed an act that the church recognizes to be sufficient for notoriety. Who would determine It's an ecclesiastical judge. But the judge would still have to determine that the notorious act has been committed. So the judge would still have to investigate to determine if the fact, if he did join a non Catholic sect, if he sufficiently establishes that, then he can be treated as a notorious heretic, whatever the penalty is or whatever the case is, he can then be treated as a notorious heretic by fact if he commits the act and if the judge in the case confirms that he committed the act.
2: Mm-hmm. So ultimately it's the church who is is legally mm-hmm. recognizing that the social bond has been severed, right? you know, when we hypothesize and use examples, it becomes a little more difficult because we have to apply the facts, you know, to, to the law. But, but in general, it's only when the church officially recognizes that the social bond has been severed. Right.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if, some, if someone left the church, joined the Baptist church, and then returned, then they would be treated as a notorious heretic, I guess, as far as confessions that make a profession of faith, have their excommunication lifted, So the church would learn about it then through the confessor, but if they remained outside, I
0: guess the church would not have yet legally recognized it. Right. Okay. Here's another question. Would you agree that certain corrupt members of the modern hierarchy have taken dire advantage of the generous leeway the church grants before the breaking of the social bond is completed? I suppose. Absolutely. Well, the thing is, it's a visible church, and, um, you know, there's, there's wheat and there's tares, right? It's um, uh, something which uh, there's great patience. The church is very patient about things. So,
1: um, I think of Christ, in the garden of Gethsemane, when he told them, this is your hour. Yeah. So this is the hour for the enemies of the church. Christ has let them get, a, get away with a lot to prove that they can't destroy the church. Right. But this, this is their hour, so he's allowing, you know, he's tolerating it. Okay. it, it just as he
0: allowed.
2: Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, Robert, it, it brings to mind how liberal, if you will, Bellerman was when he recognized who's a member of the church. He even said Turks and pagans and Jews, those who may even be pretending to be members of the church. Bellerman went so far as to say that they would be considered part of this you know, the social, you know, visible social unit, potentially, members. I, I think modern theologians wouldn't, wouldn't go that far, but, but it, it, it does show, you know, how severe the break has to be for the church to recognize that, in fact, there, there is a break. Right. Well yeah.
1: said. Yeah, in this chapter on occult heretics, Bellarmine he was fighting against the Protestants. So he was trying to defend the, the visibility of the church, and he went even a little, little too far on it. One thing he said is that it's infallibly certain that anyone who's externally joined to the church is a member of the church. So then he answered objections. Well, what about a Jew who pretended to be a Catholic? Is he a member? What about a true manifest heretic, a non-Catholic? Would he be a member if he pretended to be a Catholic? What about a Turk? And he first he said, yes, there are, there are members. Then he qualified it and said, well, it's probably better to say there are members in appearance only. But he he almost called them members as well before he qualified it. It just shows how far he went to save the visibility of the church or to defend the visibility of the church, I would say.
2: That's good, Robin. I I think there's been an authentic development of doctrine, Robin. I've talked about this on who is a member. Uh, This has been debated for a long time. I think we're at a point now where... You need valid water baptism coupled with the profession of faith in a Catholic church in order to be a legal member of the church. Mm -hmm. That would be the the opinion that I would hold.
0: Right, right. Mm -hmm. If someone, this is another question, if someone who professes to be Catholic but leaves the church to join Eastern Orthodoxy after they research and determine that the papacy papacy is supposedly wrong, like they didn't see any evidence for the papacy, would this be a formal heresy and therefore a mortal sin? So they profess to be Catholic. They leave and join Eastern Orthodoxy because they research the papacy. Would this be formal heresy and therefore a mortal sin? Well, we can't, always, can't
1: judge the internal form, but it sure seems like the conditions will be met. They would be a notorious heretic recognized by the church. Whether or not they're guilty of the sin of heresy, it's hard to say. You know, you would think so.
2: Yeah, I would, I would refer to the Catechism of, of Trent, um, which presupposes that Catholics who leave the church are formal heretics. I think in that case, Father, um, there and, and the, the, the questioner says, after they researched and determined the papacy is wrong, I think the church could presume in that case um, guilt in the external forum and hold them to be a formal heretic and hence a public non-Catholic. Right, good because they were a Catholic before, and thus they had sufficient knowledge that the church is the rule of faith, and then rejected that. You see, right. that's where the culpability comes into play.
0: Good. Um, this question, I'm going to skip one to go back to it, but this, this question says, what mm-hmm. constitutes, quote-unquote, the church convicting the pope of heresy? Does it one cardinal, four cardinals, X many bishops? I mean, what constitutes the mm-hmm. church that would convict the pope? How many do you need? That's that's debated.
1: Um, I agree with Jonathan St. Thomas, who said it has to be an imperfect council. Matter of fact, Bellarmine, he agrees with Cajetan that imperfect council can be called if a pope is suspected of heresy. So he agrees with that. But he also says a general council wouldn't be required. It could be a particular council, a local council. So whether or not it has to be a general council or just a local council is debated, or whether it can be the cardinals, that's debated. But it wouldn't just be one bishop on his own. It'd be some type of official body that gathered to oversee the process.
0: Okay. Now, this is a question. Has a pope ever been convicted and removed from office of pope? If yes, who and when? And same thing with the cardinal. Has a cardinal officially been removed from office, convicted and removed? Do you know of any historical examples?
1: That's a great question because there's, there's hardly any extor- historical examples of someone being ipso facto deposed. I don't know of any. The set of not just bring up uh, Nestorius from the fifth century, mm-hmm. but St. Alphonse says no, he retained his office until he was deposed by Ephesus. So the only historical example of the set of a cantus bringer, someone being ipso facto deposed, is questionable whether he was even ipso facto deposed. So I don't know of any examples. I'm sure there's been some that have been deposed by the church, but ipso facto deposed and then declared later on to have lost their office, I don't know of any examples. As far as popes, Honorius was convicted of heresy after he had already died. He was convicted by a council but that was after he had already died again. Yep,
2: that was that, that was after he died. Marcellinus, and um, the false worship and the incense to Jupiter comes to mind, but again, he wasn't removed from
0: office. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, now, we're going to end with this one. Could some pope or council in the future declare that Pope Francis was never a valid pope? No. no. Nope.
2: You both said it at the same time. No, because he's been peacefully and universally accepted. Peacefully and universally accepted.
0: Well said, yeah. And actually, you know, as we sort of bring this to a close, and I appreciate, again, all that you've done, both of you, this book, again, True Pope, False Pope, and there will be a follow-up on this fairly soon. Keep watch on that. Very important book in many ways. Um, But also... um, That notion of universal and peaceful acceptance and what I like to call, and others have called, I have a tough time saying it, sede benediciplainism, (laughs) the notion that Mm -hmm. Benedict is still Pope. I'm not sure in the future if both of you would be willing to tackle that in the Mm -hmm. future on a show with us and on on this only Zoom broadcast because I think that that is a bit more appealing to people because um, they, did, well, I'm not a sedificantist. I, I still think Benedict spoke though. I mean, they kind of go down that road. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if maybe in the future, you would be able to talk about some of the sedificantist positions where they seek to attack the present church. All ordinations are invalid. The sacraments in many cases are invalid. And this is something that your book did chapter 19 on the Episcopal ordinations, I know was very important for some of my people, uh, defending the legitimacy, uh, legitimacy and, of course, validity also of the Episcopal ordinations. Would you be willing to come back to discuss maybe that issue, the validity of the sacraments of uh, the, the the church, <laughs> uh, which is approved, and also maybe tackle that issue that that Francis <laughs> is the pope, and Benedict is one who resigned and left the sea empty as he said mm-hmm. in his resignation and maybe this foolish distinction that people are making between the mission uh the munis um and sort of the uh, sort of something he only retired from one aspect of the papacy as they say so mm-hmm. Would would both of you be willing to do that in the future? Oh, certainly. Okay, great. So maybe we could try to set that up in the future. So uh, thank you again to both of you. And again, for everybody who's tuned in, uh, thank you for the questions. And remember to look up that book. And they also have a website, True Pope, False Pope blog that they do, which is very well done as well. A lot of, they keep it updated. So please uh, attend to that in the future. Thank you again. And let's close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. I give you a blessing through the session of our Blessed Mother, Good Saint Joseph, City guardian angels and patron saints, Benedict, Sior, and Patris, et Fidi, et Spiritus and Supervos, et Maniat Semper. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, good Father. Appreciate it. Thank you, Father. Bye-bye now.